the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be with you as we're heading into the weekend. Hope everybody has a wonderful weekend. I have to say, it's kind of interesting this year, for some reason, I don't really know why, my family and I have watched more pro football at the end of the season and in the playoffs than I have in a long, long time. I don't know whether it was the busyness of uh, life, just sort of everything happening over the last few years, but never watched much uh, National, uh, National Football League. This year, watched a lot of the playoffs. Looking forward to some good games this weekend. So I uh, hope everybody has a great weekend. And there's a lot to think about heading into the weekend, a lot to pay attention to, but hopefully you'll pay attention to family and friends and uh, some uh, time away from worrying about all this stuff. So we got some great interviews again today. We'll talk with Todd Benzman about the immigration problem at the border. I can't encourage you enough. I can't encourage you strongly enough. Please visit uh, CIS.org, the Center for Immigration Studies, CIS.org, where Todd Benzman and Mark Krikorian and others uh, lead the country in understanding the invasion of this country lawlessly uh, and immigration. It's extraordinary, and they're very, very good. Uh, they're very capable. We'll talk with Todd Benzman in a few moments. Uh, but let me first, let me talk more broadly about something. I hope you, this, this could have been my last segment tonight, today, um, something for you to do. You ought to go find and make sure that you sign up to follow Pat Buchanan, Pat Buchanan sends an email out every single day. It's uh, Buchanan. Let me see if his website is Buchanan.org is the site, I think. Let me make sure. Sorry. Um, and Pat Buchanan's columns, they're always interesting. He's a good writer. He's always been a great writer. He's always been a really, really fine writer. Um, he's always made it a habit to write. And so you can check that out. But he, he also, yeah, Buchanan.org and go there and sign up. He'll send you an email. His team will whenever he writes a column. And today's column earlier on Friday, the column that came out is the title is, Is Democracy Dying or America Disintegrating? And what you need to know today is the early quote in this column by Pat Buchanan should give us all pause. It's a quote from John Adams. And John Adams, in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, I think that's, yeah, in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, uh, said the following. He said, um, He's writing again to Jefferson, and he's saying, hey, uh, uh, about America and about this revolution, the term everybody was using was revolution. And so he writes this. Here's the, here's the quote. Let me get it exactly right. Quote, John Adams to Jefferson. What do we mean by revolution? The war? That was no part of the revolution. It was only an effect and consequence of it. The revolution was in the minds of the people, end quote. That's John Adams. And Pat Buchanan goes on in his column to talk about how before you can come up with a political system, you have to have a nation. Before you can decide you're going to have a representative democracy, a republic like we do. Remember the Ben Franklin quote, a republican, if you can keep it. That's what they created to manage the nation. 
The nation is made up of people. The nation is made up of values. And it precedes, it, it, it predates the decision you make about how to be operated. I mean, we, we actually did the Articles of Confederation first, then we did a new constitution. And, the, and the, what you need to know and what Buchanan underscores here is when you see the constant drumbeat from the media, from the government currently, at least the federal government, and from the, the uh, uh, political class and the, the, the entertainment class to undermine our nation – you, you have to say to yourself, what, what happens? What happens when you don't have a nation? You know, the, the, the quote, by the way, uh, Franklin is quoted as saying, a Republican, if you can keep it, said Ben Franklin to the lady who asked what kind of government they'd created. And then here's Buchanan says, for the already existing nation, for the already existing nation. In other words, there existed before you choose the way you're going to be governed. You could have unicameral. You could have had, uh, you know, you could have had direct representation. You could have, at the time we had the, uh, the, the Senate was, uh, the senators, U.S. senators were picked by the local legislatures. You could have had all kinds of permutations on your governing structure. And yet it was tied to the nation, to the people of the nation. And in fact, the, the decisions about the Constitution were, were coming directly from the values of that nation. Christian, bound by rules, bound together by obligations that had to do with respect for the other person, for the human being, a sense of, uh, of, of community that meant that was focused more on the rule of law than on any communitarian kind of thing. Limits on the power of others over individuals, limits on corporate power. The under, at the time, the nation, if you go back and read to people like uh, uh, de Tocqueville, describing this incredible uh, fraternity among men and women, but especially at the time men, you know, associations that had developed and the kinds of relationships, the, the, the things that allowed the American Constitution to develop, to happen, miraculously, divinely inspired, in my opinion, had, a, had everything to do with the nation, the people that were together, their experience of religious liberty being in, in, uh, stepped on, their experience of a bullying uh, faraway government, their sense of how trade worked for them, even their regional differences and how they came to understand those. All this stuff is the nation. And what Buchanan has been writing about for a while now, not just it's not new to him, is are we losing that nation? Uh, you know, it is true that we may have, and I think we saw the manipulation of the election system, whether it was illegal or not. It was clear Mark Elias and others bragged about, quote, fortifying the election to beat Trump. They, they used the system. I don't know whether they abused it. We didn't get, didn't get proven. It seems like they might have. Seems like they must have to me. But they said they gamed the system. They rigged the system. Legally, they say in order to do what they wanted. In other words, they were able to game the system in their favor because why? Because they believe their values had to, tr had to trump, literally had to take out Trump. 
And so what you need to know now is the underlying nation, the fight over, say, critical race theory, the fight over statues, the fight over education, the fight over God in the public square, prayer in the public square, all these battles that the people say, oh, well, that's not that's not the main focus. Most people don't care. All these battles are are at the heart of our of our, our sense of nation, of our shared values that allow us to be knitted together. That allow us to come to uh, uh, decisions that will be respected, if not liked, by the others and even the majority. And so there's a sense, if you lose the nation, it may not matter what you're arguing about in terms of how your system works, how your governing system works. It may not matter that much because that system could change. It could shift. I mean, there were major shifts. I mean, think about the seismic shift just over 100 years ago, 110 years ago, I guess it was, maybe 115 now. There was the progressive movement that did a couple things. One is it put in the federal income tax. Up until that time, the federal income tax had, did not exist, and therefore the federal government couldn't grow except by other kinds of, uh, of payments, and it was hard for them to get that done. They would try to do uh, taxes on commerce and things, and, and there was too, it was hard to do. Federal income tax happens and massive growth in government, number one. Number two, Massive change, massive change that we decided to, instead of having senators, U.S. senators picked by the state legislatures and sent up, they would be elected by the people. Again, I, I'm not, I don't like it. I think I prefer the other way, but I don't know. I wasn't around then. They say that it was very corrupt, the system or whatever. But the point is, these are major changes to our governing system. But underlying it, you'd see a nation. You see a nation. That's Pat Buchanan's point of view. Okay, that's, that's Pat Buchanan's argument. And here's what I'd say. When you watch and see that, I don't know, a third of the country seems to disrespect, even disdain, or maybe even hate the values of most Americans, of the American nation, the, the, the founding of the American nation, you do question, and that's how uh, Buchanan's uh, column ends, where does it end up? Where does it end up? Now, that's my uh, admonition, my warning, that when you're talking about politics and the political system, yeah, it's important. And yes, it's got to be fought for. And yes, we need leaders who stand up. And yes, we have to change the direction, drain the swamp and stop the corruption. But there's a whole set of this, a whole part of this that really is a battle over nation, which is a battle over values, which is a battle over people. And we've got to be willing to fight that, too. That's why we have so many guests on. We'll have a few more. Uh, we'll, we'll talk with Todd Benzman. That's political, too. Uh, so many guests on that are talking about the, uh, the, the culture and these issues and the, and the values. So we got to take a break, everybody. Don't forget, ProAmericaReport.com. Check it out. Uh, sign up there for the Daily Wink. That's what you need to know. We'll be right back. Ed Martin, back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report, and I'm catching up with my old friends. Uh, my, one of them is Todd Benzman, the best resource, the best source and resource for understanding what is happening with immigration, what's happening at the border. He's a fearless uh, uh, advocate for getting the truth out, journalist. Um, he's with the Center for Immigration Studies, CIS. Dot org cis.org and you can find all of his writings there todd welcome back it's good to talk to you how are you i'm doing great uh just back from uh southern mexico at the guatemala border and uh glad to be back in civilization for a while well tell me about that tell me what you saw 
Well, I was down for about eight days, and I guess the shortest, uh, quickest way to say it is that uh, there is a, a flood of migrants still coming in from around the world, uh, 25,000 right now on the way through the Darien Gap jungle. Uh, they should start to uh, hit Tapachula, which is the main artery down there on the southern border in probably a week or so. And when they do, they'll already find 15,000 migrants in the city. So it's going to be, you know, 40, 50,000 uh, in short order. The Mexican government is slow rolling them, blocking them up down there, making them get hall passes. And, uh, you know, that's permission slips to be in the country. Uh, they do that as a favor to Joe Biden so that it doesn't look so bad at our border for a little while. But right. uh, in a pretty short order, they will. The Mexicans have discovered this new way to release that dam, the people behind that dam, by using uh, something called an ant operation. <laughs> uh, ant operations are usually um, uh, it, it's nomenclature in the world of criminal smuggling, where you divide up all your drugs or people in a bunch of different trails of onesies and twosies uh, so that nobody notices what's moving up. But you seldom see a government, a state doing it. And in December, the Mexicans did the very first ant operation where they moved 50,000 of the people they were supposed to hold back and get rid of uh, to 14 different Mexican states all around the country wow. aboard 500 buses that, that the government arranged using these special visas called QR code visas. It's a very organized ant operation and nobody noticed it. It worked. Uh, we should be seeing these ant operations. Well, not everybody, just those of us who know what it is, <laughs> what to look for, uh, all, right. all the rest of 2022. Uh, we're talking with uh, Todd Benzman again, uh, Center for Immigration Studies, CIS.org. Uh, if you go over there, um, you can check out all of his writings. Uh, and uh, um, Todd, I did this to you. I do this to you almost every time I talk to you. It, I, and I, I feel like I know the answer, but I, I want to ask. When you go down there, you're at the southern border uh, of Mexico, right? It, it, and yes. you've been to the American border. Um, is it worse than even you expected? I know it's worse than we're seeing because we're not seeing coverage of it, but is it, is it, you know, is it worse? Well, I'm used to it by now uh, at this level. It's, it's extremely busy. Uh, there are a lot of migrants uh, crawling all over Tapachula, moving all through uh, of nationalities of a diversity that is really astounding. I mean, I, I was with uh, African migrants in large numbers from, you know, 10 different countries, you know, Ghana and Cameroon. And I met my first Sierra Leonean, uh, lots of Senegalese. Uh, you know, I also met Uzbeks uh, from Uzbekistan. Uh, you name it, they are really, that's, that's where you can really see them down there in Tapachula. Uh, once they reach our southern border, Border Patrol takes custody of them, and they're harder to, to really see, and you certainly can't talk to them at that point. 
But I'd like to go to what I call America's other southern border, which is down there to really take the pulse on on the big artery uh, coming through. And uh, I don't see much sign that it's slowing. Uh, there is one uh, glimmer of hope. I know I'm usually a very dour, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, not, not serving <laughs> Yeah, not serving up happy meals here usually, but but today I have a piece out at cis.org that's a bit of a happy meal because uh, it reports that the Biden government has reinstituted air repatriation flights on Haitians. So every day now, and they've done this very secretively uh, because there was a big spike in Haitians again in December. And it was that month that they said, we're bringing the repatriation flights again. And it's not been reported. You'll only see it in my story at cis.org. Nobody has reported this yet. Uh, And the importance of it is twofold. One is every Haitian that I met down there, when I asked, where are you going? They said, not the United States now. (laughs) We're, we're just we can't we can't risk it, uh, and huh. you know huge numbers of Haitians cross our border in this migration crisis, but they're not going to now because the threat of repatriation by air is utterly paralyzing to them. It's just something beyond uh, terrible for huh. them. So they're not they're not going to do it. But it shows that the other thing is that it shows that the Biden administration. Uh, is moving toward Trumpian policy now with the midterms coming up. Uh, they are, we, we saw the resignations uh, a week, two weeks ago of the top two Biden progressive liberals in charge of uh, advising on policy, immigration policy. They right. left, departed, uh, resigned. I believe it was over these repatriation flights, although that hasn't come out yet. But it shows that there are people in the White House who are starting to see the implications for the midterm elections and maybe the 2024 elections if they can't get these numbers down. Uh, It's not working so far. (laughs) The numbers are still horrendous. Uh, 180,000, 179,000 in December. Uh, terrible number, just awful uh, record-breaking number for that month, uh, going all the way back 20, 30 years. But at least they're starting to use air repatriation as a deterrent, yeah. and that does work. Um, we're talking with uh, Todd Benzman, and let me uh, say a couple things, Todd. Uh, if you go to cis.org, you'll see his um, his page where he's referred to a few of his articles. He's a senior national security fellow uh, over at the Center for Immigration Studies. Lots of really uh, good stuff, important stuff. Also over on Twitter, uh, it's at Benzman Todd. Uh, he's tweeting over there. Um, Todd, uh, I did notice, though, I think your colleague, uh, Mark Krikorian, though, um, said that uh, and i and i'm not i'm not i'm not making you the subject matter expert on his his comment but i think he was tweeting that the biden administration may use one of the administrative rules to give amnesty to like everybody um so while you may you may be saying hey they're doing some things at the border to try to show that they're um not quite it's not quite as chaotic they're not 
they're not getting conservative on these issues. Well, I think that reflects an ongoing conflict inside the White House between the liberal progressives and the what I call the you know security-minded pragmatists. There are those. Remember the right. Democrat. The Democrats have never been anywhere near where they are now on open borders. Never. Uh, right. The, the the Clinton years, the Obama years. They used to call Obama the deporter in chief. Uh, this is something we are in like otherworldly Netherland territory with this stuff. So anything at all that would uh, move us, you know, closer to the old Democrats is, you know, much better than this. But I don't think that they are doing it. They're succeeding yet. We did have those two resignations. I was very happy to see those two resignations. Um, Tyler uh, Moore, I think, and the other one was Olivares, uh, right. if I got that right. And uh, those were key architects of all of this crazy uh, policy, you know, ending uh, deportations. And Todd, I gotta, I'm going to run out of time, but I, I want to get to one more question. So we're talking to Todd Benzman, uh, Senior National Security Fellow over at the Center for Immigration Studies, CIS.org. Um, his book, which I have on my shelf in front of me, America's Covert Border War, The Untold Story of the Nation's Battle to Prevent Jihadist Infiltration. And I've told you before, Todd, that while it is uh, daunting to watch a flood of people, a lot of times kids and women and all coming, um, my wife will always say to me, uh, Todd says they're bringing over bad guys, that they're actually sending over bad people. That as a, It's a design in the system now. Uh, tell me about what's happening now. Is there anybody realizing, even the Biden administration, they don't want to let terrorists in? Well, just uh, a few days ago, uh, former Border Patrol chief Rodney Scott, he was the last one under Trump, said that during his last year in office, they caught 14 migrants who were on the terror watch list in that one year. Now, 14 is uh, pretty much a, a good chunk of the team that did 9-11. Uh, you don't right. even want one or you don't even want one or two of those guys right. coming through. But we did right. have a case where the border crisis I wrote about this uh, let ended with a the Mexicans letting a Yemeni on the terror watch list. Oh, yeah, yeah. Free. Yeah, um, yeah. and he's uh, gone. Todd, Todd, I'm sorry. I'm up against a hard stop in terms of the time. i got to run. We'll have you back again very soon. It's been far too long. Todd Benzman, everybody, he's a really valuable part of what's happening in this country in terms of understanding. He's a senior national security fellow over at CIS.org. Uh, we will take a quick break, everybody. We'll be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. <laughs> Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. My old friend, and I mean that. You say, people on radio always say, my old friend. My old friend, in this case, McGraw-Millhaven. It's probably 15, maybe 20 years I've known McGraw. He's been a longtime host at the Big 550 KTRS in uh, St. Louis. Uh, he has been hosting a morning show. He did an afternoon show at one point. He's really a, a mainstay uh, in St. Louis. He's also a writes uh, columns, does all sorts of creative things with his uh, now with his uh, program on uh, video. 
video, and he's most famous at this moment because there is a book called The Tender Bar that is a really extraordinary memoir. I read it about three or four years ago, written by his cousin, uh, J.R. Moringer, who's now famous. The book was optioned by George Clooney. They made it into a movie with Ben Affleck. It's very popular right now, and we'll talk about the movie in a minute. But the book, the memoir, includes a character who is McGraw-Millhaven. His, he was one of the cousins in this life, in this memoir that's written by uh, J.R. Moringer, and it's extraordinary. It's a really well... Uh, uh, and so I thought, let, let me talk to McGraw again and catch up with him, but also about this uh, book and the movie, The Tender Bar. So welcome, McGraw. How are you? Ed Martin, I will. Ne- I can never say no to you, so I am glad to be here. <laughs> you've been on TV well, that's good. I got a million times, so it's about time I return the favor. Well, there you go. I've got this. I want. I've got this land. I want to uh, buy. You can just help <laughs> me buy it. You'll never say no. Uh, all right. So McGraw, let me ask you a different question. When you read the book, the Tender Bar, the memoir, J.R. Moringer, and even watch yeah. the movie, you say, "Wow, this kid came from nothing. From a lot of, you know, a lot of support. A mother and uncle, a grandpa and grandma. All this stuff. It's pretty extraordinary. We'll get to that. Uh, but when you read the book, and you're in the book, you realize like people come from sort of long shot." Right. And and some ways, McGraw-Millhaven, you could have written your you could write your own memoir of your long shot because you, you, you had a similar you. I think you you were the character that moved to Arizona, I think. Right. And then came back right. to the yeah. family. And then and you made it you made it to college by being a baseball player. I think if I got it right. I mean, what, what, how did your arc in that in the tender bar? It's J.R. Moringer makes it. I mean, I've never met him. He may be the greatest guy ever. I think he seems like a good guy, but he he makes it out of a tough life. And you you did that too. How did your arc go in that in that sort of t- the memoir? So it's really interesting. Um, memories are an interesting thing. Um, reading somebody else's memories of your childhood is a strange and bizarre exercise. Um, I've always yeah. said it's his story. Um, I would have written a completely different story, right? It's his story. And and everything that happened, I was either in the scene or watching the scene or heard about the scene or was right next to the scene, like 90% of it. Um, Right. And, but yet it's his story. And we lived in the same house at the same grandparents, same uncle, same bar, same friends. But the things that affected him didn't affect me. And, and, And when I read the book, there are scenes where, and this makes it into the movie, where Grandpa takes him to the father-son uh, banquet. And Grandpa did right. the same thing for me, right? We didn't have any fathers, and so we were raised by right. single mothers living in Grandma's house. And so in the movie, Christopher Lloyd, who plays my grandfather, takes him to this father-son dan- uh, uh, like breakfast. Well, two years later, right. Grandpa did the same thing with me. I never would have put that in a, a, a scene in my memoir because yeah, it was nice of grandpa, but it didn't have the same effect on me as it had on Jr. So it was <laughs> interesting reading a story that I knew, but looking at, at, at a perspective from his point of view, that's the only way I can. Uh, we're talking. Yeah, we're talking with McGraw Millhaven. And by the way, you could follow McGraw on uh, uh, Twitter at McGraw Millhaven. I'll make sure to put up on social media and uh, and and uh, 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 link some stuff there. Uh, on that, but for one second, on that, McGraw, when you finish, when you're, you know, you're, you're, well, I guess in your fifties, uh, you know, you, at this point, you mentioned, and and you're looking back at your life and your your and your cousin's life and your family's life. As we were talking off the air about how you said some of these characters, like your uncle Charlie, your grandpa, have been. Um, 
memorialized in a way that you sort of everyone will know them for history in a way that you never could have expected. It's pretty cool. But when you look at you and Jr. and probably other cousins, is it? Do you feel like you can say, "Hey, this is America at its best"? You you, you can be from a family that's imperfect. By, by the way, in the book, I think I remember Uncle Charlie being charming and all, but he's in the movie because it's Ben Affleck. He looks really cool and kind of a <laughs> successful cool guy. I, 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 in the, get, remind me, Uncle Charlie. He 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 didn't he he didn't he, he's no longer alive, right? His life wasn't particularly. Uh, now looking at it, you say he was a wonderful guy. He loved people, but it wasn't like the most successful thing by lots of measures. And. It, when you look at you and Jr., is this what America's about? That you can come from all this crap and still laugh and have fun and be loved and make it? Well, so you've asked me seven questions there. Let me try and break it down for you. Um, Uncle, Char- Sorry. <laughs> Uncle Charlie. Uncle <laughs> Charlie. W- uh, I mean, Ben Affleck. Uh, well, let me say, Uncle Charlie was bald. He had um, he had alopecia, so he didn't have a uh-huh. follicle of hair on his head. But he was like seventies right. Kojak cool. Right. He was he was cool before bald was cool. Um, and he was he had a flair to him and he was sort of an actor behind the bar and he put an act on and he didn't just sling drinks. It was an act. He was he was he, he was performing every night and he had sayings and and, um, you know, gyrations that were just part of Uncle Charlie. And you would say, hey, what are you doing tonight? Uh, let's go rock the Chaz bar. And you would go and you'd be entertained by Uncle Charlie and you'd tell stories. And that was sort of the charm of the bar. Um, so right. he was cool in a way in which Ben Affleck isn't right. Ben Affleck's, a, you know, a, a movie star. Um, but I thought Ben Affleck captured some really good parts of Uncle Charlie. But it was also a somewhat sanitized version. I mean, he was an alcoholic. Uh, he was a gambler, not a very good one. And he lived in his mother's, <laughs> you know, he, he lived in his childhood house uh, and in his room his whole life. So. You know, where Hollywood sort of romanticized him, there were some really, you know, he was my uncle and I loved him and he was my godfather. But, you know, there were parts where you didn't want to grow up to be like Uncle Charlie. Um, right. In terms of, in terms of, you know, being raised, and, and a lot of people have sort of pointed this out to us and we kind of knew, the house was full of love. It was dysfunctional in a lot of ways, but there was a lot of love. Right. And we were told, right, do as I say, not as I do. And there was no... Um, there was no thought of not going to college. There was no thought of, you know, look, we just don't have any money. We're not poor. We're just broke. Um, and that was sort of, that was right. That was sort of the philosophy of it. And yet, but they still, they still taught us in things that didn't cost any money. Right. I mean, they would still, you know, talk to us, um, and teach us and make us read books and talk to us about the current events and all those types of things. So there was a lot of love and there was a lot of education going on. They didn't treat us like children. You know, they didn't, JR want a cracker? You know, you had to bring it at the kitchen table and you had to have an opinion and it had to be backed up by facts or you just sat quiet and listened to the adults talk. If that sort of um, we're talking with part of your question. Yeah, yeah, we're talking with McGraw, McGraw Millhaven. Uh, let me ask about the movie, the Tender Bar. The movie I told you years ago. The, I loved the book, the the, te- the book uh, J.R. Moringer's book, the memoir. I loved it. I told you that. Then I didn't watch the movie until I texted you earlier this week or last week because I was I I wasn't happy. I thought, well, it's going to be not the same. But you had an interesting perspective because it's not none of it was the same as you point out. The memoir is not your memoir. The movie isn't the from the his book. So, but t- tell me about that. Tell our listeners about how you reacted to the movie and how the whole thing is sort of played out for you. 
So I, I, I knew the book came out in 2005, and it's been optioned by a lot of people. So there's been a lot of scripts floating around Hollywood, and ultimately Amazon Studios got it, and Clooney uh, read the script, liked it for what it was, and you know, brought on Affleck, and it was Hollywoodized. Um, and I knew um, enough about write, reading books and watching movies and seeing movies from books that you, you can't tell every part of a book. Um, you know, like the movie Lincoln, right? He, they, he, you can only right. tell a sliver of a story. Um, and so right. I knew that it, they were going to have to sort of cut away a lot of the movie and sanitize some of it and make it more sort of fit a, a narrative. So, I, you know, right. Clooney's telling the story. So to the storyteller, you know, he tells the story. If I'm telling the story and I'm making the movie, I'm making a different movie about the same book. So I, I can't... Right get angry with Clooney or Ben Affleck for, for, you know, taking something, taking some liberty with my childhood because my sisters and I and Jr. still argue about our childhood. So if, if, <laughs> if we can't agree on our childhood, how can Clooney and Ben Affleck agree? So you take it for what it is. And I, I'll, I will say this and I, and I text this to you and I really mean this um, for all of the liberties Hollywood took and everything else. I get to talk to you about my grandmother yeah. and grandfather and in a way it still keeps them alive and they would yeah. love it. They think it's cool. And for anybody who would stop us on the street and say, let me ask you a question about grandma, grandpa, they would be so yeah. angry with us. If we blew them off or didn't have time for them, <laughs> they would say, you right. sit there and you answer all. If, if they are interested in something you have to say, you, you answer the questions and you are polite and you listen to them and you pay them respect. So in that sense, you know, America gets to, you know, talk to us about grandma and grandpa. And when it, when it's all said and done, who cares that the, the uh, uncle Charlie's Cadillac was really black and not blue. And, you know, uncle right. Charlie didn't have hair. We get to talk about grandma and grandpa. And that's pretty special. By the way, one, I think I told you, but I'll tell listeners one time I met Brian Kilmeade. I got to, he gave a bunch of speeches. Kilmeade's family, two or three towns over, his dad ran a bar called Kilmeade's from where your bar, where he knew your bar. He knew the whole story. The, the book had already come out, the tender bar, and he knew all about it. And, uh, that whole, as you and I were also texting, that whole world in the seventies, eighties of these neighborhood bars that had these characters in them. And it's just a different world that everything, everything moves along. Uh, hey, uh, McGraw, before I let you go, Hold on, JR. hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay. I, I, I can't let yeah. that stand. That's fake news. Oh, um, it is. Brian, Brian Kilmeade's bar, the Kilmeads, wasn't two or three towns over. It was two or three blocks down the street. Oh, and really? So, yeah. And so Kilmeads, it was a planned home road in Manhattan. Some of your listeners might know. Uh, and as Jr. writes in the book, the biggest Catholic church is on one end of the street. And the biggest bar is on the other end of the street. In between is lined with bars. And one of them was Kilmeade's bar. And Brian Kilmeade's dad ran Kilmeade's. Now, he died in a car accident when yeah. Brian was yeah. 10, 11, 12, yeah. 13. And Brian had a tough life because him and his family had to sort of figure out the pieces and run the bar. Uh, and they lived yep. in Massapequa. And so I okay. knew I knew Brian. I, so he didn't live in our hometown, but I knew Kilmeade's. And, I may or may not have been underserved or overserved in <laughs> exactly. I was just going to say exactly. That's what that's what I was. That's where we were really heading. You were saying at various times that they were trying to make it float, and you were down there helping float it. All right, but la last question before I lose you. Now uh, McGraw, we're talking about McGraw McGraw Millhaven uh, and J.R. Moringer. By the time you're done the book, 
you're rooting for him, right? You're rooting for him. I mean, excuse me, not the book, the book too, but the book, the book you finish and you're like, wow, what a life, what America and all. The movie, when you're done, you're rooting for him, right? He goes off, he's trying to New York Times and all. And when I read about him now, I've never met him, it, it looks like he's a great success. Has he been a great success? And maybe not as a, he's, he won a Pulitzer or something, so he's been a success that way. Has his life been as, as good as you hope it is or a viewer hopes it is? Well, I, you know, I, I, he's married. He has two kids. Um, you know, he's gone on to write. Andre Agassi read The Tender Bar, and he wrote Open for Andre Agassi, considered the best sports oh. biography ever. Uh, he wrote Shoe wow. Dog for Phil Knight, um, which is still going oh. strong. Um, so, I mean, he's been able to sort of parlay this into a nice writing career, and he's wrote, he wrote a nice uh, historical novel called Sutton. And if you're a fan of... Uh, Willie Sutton, the bank robber. That's a fun sort of his, historical novel. So he's had a chance to do some things, and he's still, you know, plugging along. But you know, look, like everybody else, right? You have success, you have failures, you have good days, you have, you have bad days. Um, and I think right. he would tell you that the book he wrote, well, even though it's about men and bars, I think he would tell you that it really the hero. When people write memoirs, they usually make themselves the hero of the book. And right. he would tell you that he wrote his memoir where all the women in the book were the heroes. The men were the huh. father figures, and the men kept dragging him down, teaching him how to gamble and how to drink, and, right? And the women were the ones right. who sort of kept him on the straight and, and narrow. And so all the women and all their faults and all of their um, coming in and out of his life, they were the true heroes of the memoir. And so, huh. you know, what, what, what is successful? You know, we're all bouncing up walls trying to figure things out. And I, I, you know, he's, he's, him and I are still very, very close. We talk and text all the time. And, um, you know, we sort of laugh and make jokes and, you know, Ben Affleck's really playing uncle Charlie. How is that even possible? So we've had, it's, <laughs> it's been fun. Let's just say that. Yeah. All right. McGraw Millhaven. Thank you for, it's been fun also to have you on. Thank you for coming on McGraw Millhaven, everybody. I'll put it up on uh, social media, all his stuff and uh, appreciate it very much. And Martin, anytime, my friend, stay safe. All right, McGraw-Millhaven. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily commentary continuing the conservative pro-family legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. And now, from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. The feminist lobby has carried on a 10-year campaign to sell the false propaganda that girls are cheated all through the education system, kindergarten through college. This campaign started in 1992 when the feminist American Association of University Women issued a report called How Schools Shortchange Girls. It claimed that research showed that teachers focus their attention on boys, neglect girls, and discourage girls from taking important math and science courses. This report was a lie that started real discrimination against boys and young men. This report was fully debunked by researcher Christina Hoff Summers, who proved that feminist claims that girls are shortchanged in school are riddled with errors and not published in peer-reviewed professional journals. Nevertheless, this phony report started a stream of taxpayer spending to deal with the non-existent problem. 
Now that college students are nearly 60% women and women receive the majority of college degrees, colleges are having a difficult time trying to maintain a 50-50 gender ratio in their student bodies. The feminists have gone into action against men again. They persuaded the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights to announce that it will investigate whether colleges illegally discriminate against women by admitting less qualified men. Those who worry about the continuation of American exceptionalism are concerned because they know that women and men make different career choices after college. Women don't take the risks necessary for business startups or for business ownership or choose the social isolation of technical laboratories in anywhere near the proportion of men. Colleges should be told that a 50-50 male-female ratio is a win-win for everybody and common sense. Everybody wants it except the feminists. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. For more than 50 years, Phyllis led the fight against the dead-end road of radical feminism. Today, with the rise of so many savvy young conservative women, new voices are emerging. You're invited to voice your opinion on what's really important to women at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back, Ed Martin. Hey, it's uh, out of time again, as usual, so quick. I do want to give you a what you need to do today, a window today, as you head into the weekend, because I did get some emails. Uh, I forwarded out to some folks the Pat Buchanan article, and I was reminded, I did get a couple of emails last time I talked about his column saying, where do I sign up? Okay, here it is, Buchanan.org, Buchanan.org. If you go to that website, you click on the main thing, you're on the blog page, and then you'll say, see Brigade. E-list. Buchanan Brigade, his famous words when he was uh, on the uh, stump, and you can sign up right there. It's very easy. There's a wonderful lady, I've never met her, I don't think, named Linda Muller, who is the uh, website manager and keeps the E-list. So go there. I'll put it up on social media. It is so worth signing up for Pat's uh, website, uh, excuse me, Pat's emails, and the website's really good too. Lots of good stuff there. So I encourage you to do it. Have a great weekend, everybody. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report again, Buchanan.org. Click through to the E-Brigade, the uh, the uh, Buchanan Brigade email list, uh, Buchanan Brigade e-list. Uh, have a great weekend, everybody. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. This is the Pro America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.